So uh, if you will now, we're going to transition into Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. So if you would grab your Bibles, open them to Isaiah 7. Please stand with me as we will give attention to the reading of God's Word here together. As you guys know, we are in the second week of Advent, and we have been looking at Old Testament prophecies that we find their fulfillment and prediction of the, uh, the birth and the coming of Jesus. So last week we looked at Micah 5, that, that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. And today we look at this other passage in Isaiah chapter 7 that we will spend our time in this morning. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. But could not yet mount an attack against it, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the way, highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet. Do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. I'm going to quickly read now from Matthew chapter 1. Verse 22 says this, says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, this is your people that you have created, that you have gathered together today. And we come in here from a world that is marked by brokenness, difficulty, and sin. And so today we cling to the hope that you are still with us, 
that you still reign over all things. And we look to you this morning in your holy word that you have graciously given to us, and we ask that you would show up once again and reveal to us our need of you. Let us see you as beautiful and lovely in the way you have condescended to us in our condition. So I pray that you would allow me to stand behind your word and that your word would go forth and accomplish its purposes, that it will not return void. We cling to that promise this morning, and we ask for your will to be done in all of our hearts today. Open us up through your spirit to receive your words, to be changed by it, to be humbled before it, to just love you more because of this time together and because of looking into your word. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus that we come before you. Amen. You can have a seat. The story has been told of a, a young girl who was uh, sitting at her kitchen table, and she called out to her mother and asked, Mommy, what does virgin mean? And her mother, taken back by her young child's rather mature question, uh, began to stumble for words and, and try to explain this concept to her daughter. And after anxiously kind of piecing together some concepts for her and trying to explain a little bit of the birds and the bees to her daughter, she says, honey, do, does that make sense? Do you have any more questions? To which the daughter replied, yeah, mommy, just one more. What does extra virgin mean? <laughs> and at, at that point, the mother looked down at the table to see a bottle of extra virgin olive oil. And quickly realized that this conversation, rather unexpected one, wasn't necessarily, uh, didn't need to happen at the time. And what a funny story like that communicates to us is that context is really important when dealing with language. Many misunderstandings have occurred due to a lack of understanding the context. And what we encounter today in this passage is a statement that likely sounds very familiar to us, but just as likely is the reality that few of us probably knew the context of this statement before coming in here today. But having now read Isaiah chapter 7, it is possible that you may be left scratching your head to understand how this familiar passage that's always associated with Christmas and the birth of Jesus this reference to Emmanuel, this word that we plaster on ornaments and that we sing in songs, you may find it strange that why this is slotted in a passage about an ancient Israelite civil war. Why does Matthew pull out just this one statement to use in his gospel? And as we dive into this passage, these are the questions that we are confronted with that come up. But also, rightly understood in its own context, this passage in Isaiah 7 offers to us a powerful encouragement to live from faith in the God who is with us and not from fear of the unknown. And so we're going to walk through this passage in just three movements. We're going to see a foolish decision from a fearful king. We're going to see the sign of hope from a gracious God. And we'll conclude with the future promise that's revealed in a child. So let's look at this foolish decision from a fearful king. Isaiah is a prophet, one who speaks to the people on behalf of God. 
And he comes during the time of the divided kingdom. The time is approximately 733 BC, where we see this stated. If you know the history of Israel, the nation of Israel was, was established and grew to its height under the, the rules of, of King Saul, David, and Solomon. But it was, it was during the reign of Solomon's sons that, that civil war broke out and the kingdom was divided between the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, which continued to be recognized and called Israel, also at times called Ephraim, and then the, the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south, recognized as Judah. So we have Judah in the south and the northern kingdom of Israel during this time. And this is, this is the time in which Isaiah first comes to speak as a prophet. And Isaiah's calling as a prophet is recorded in chapter 6. And in this, uh, this chapter, Isaiah sees this, this amazing vision, this vision of the throne room of God. And as in this vision, he finds himself before the holiness of God. It says that he cries out, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am unclean. And then in this vision, God sends an angel with this flaming coal and places it in Isaiah's mouth. But rather than being destroyed in God's presence, what God says is, now to Isaiah, he says that your, your guilt has been taken away. You are purified. And he is then commissioned to go and to speak to the people on behalf of God. But when Isaiah asks, well, what should I say to this people? God gives him this peculiar response. He says, tell them this. He says, says, go to them and say, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Basically, God says, go and warn the people of, of coming judgment Keep calling out to them to, to, to repent, but guess what? They're not going to listen to you, but this is your job, just to keep telling them, to keep pointing them in the direction, but, but they're never going to listen. Could you imagine being sent on that task? Which actually, for, for, for me, I'm kind of realizing that parenting is kind of like that, right? Um, but, but this was the task that Isaiah was sent on. And so, in chapter 7, it opens up with Isaiah coming during the rule of Ahaz, and he is the king in Judah in the southern kingdom. And Ahaz has come to the throne during a time of political unrest. We know more of what the situation looked like as we look at the, the passages recorded in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. And here's what's basically going on. There's two kingdoms in the north. There's Israel, that we've mentioned, but there, and, and Pekah is the, the king in Israel, and then there's King Rezin, who is the king of Syria. And they have united together in an alliance, these two kingdoms. There's also this other huge, massive empire, the empire of Assyria that is rising in the east, that is coming in and is expanding out and just conquering all these nations. And Assyria already at this point kind of has a foothold in Israel. Kind of ha- they haven't really conquered them fully, but they kind of have them under their thumb and basically, when, when Pekah comes to, to, to rule in Israel, he decides that, that, that maybe they, they want to rebel against Assyria. And so they, they, they feel like if they can form an alliance with Syria, then maybe they have a chance to rebel against Assyria. But in order to do this, they also want to get Judah on their side. But Ahaz doesn't want any part of that. And so they, they say, well, we're, we're going to come against Judah and remove Ahaz and put our guy, the son of Tabeel, on the throne 
And then as, as we can unite together, all three of these kingdoms maybe can have a chance of standing against Assyria. And that's essentially what's going on. And in, face of, in, in the face of this, this alliance that is formed in these two northern kingdoms, Ahaz and Judah, it says, is struck with fear. They are gripped with fear. It says that when they heard of this, this mounting attack that is coming, that they were shaken as trees that are shaken by the wind. Ahaz is shaking in his boots. And so Isaiah is sent to Ahaz during this time of turmoil to encourage the king and to encourage God's people to trust in God. And so Isaiah goes to Ahaz and he says, be careful, slow down, be quiet, do not fear. Don't let your heart be faint because of these these two smoldering stumps of firewood. Isaiah says, speaking on behalf of God in verse 7, he says, he says, Ahaz, it will not stand. And then Isaiah, doing his best Gandalf impression, says, it shall not come to pass. Like, this is not going to happen. He says, God is sovereign and he has promised to preserve Judah and specifically the Davidic line that was promised all those years ago to King David. It will not fail. God will preserve this. Nothing is going to happen outside of God's control. These are just two men. They're, they're two smoldering stumps of firewood. They're not going to start anything. They're going to quickly burn out. So Ahaz, don't be afraid of them. God has this under control. And he concludes with this challenge to him in verse 9 where he says, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you do not plant your faith in God, then you will not have anything to stand on. And then after encouraging Ahaz in this faith to trust in God, that God will accomplish what he's doing, God then gives this this amazing opportunity for Ahaz to confirm God's word. And he says this, he says, he has Isaiah say to Ahaz, he says, Ahaz, ask God for a sign. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. He says, basically, ask for anything. Shoot for the moon. If you want God to confirm himself, ask him to show you through, through whatever means you want. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't, wouldn't we all like God to lead us in that way? Just be like, you can ask for anything you want. You know, like, should I buy this house? Uh, God, if you want me to buy this house, like, strike this tree with lightning. Boom, like, like, like we, we all want that kind of sign from God. But it's peculiar how, I, how Ahaz responds to this offer from God. He says, hey, ask for a sign. And he says, oh, no, no, no. I, I'm not going to test God in that way. I'm not going to test God. And they're like, oh, Ahaz is a pretty stand-up guy, right? But what actually we know is going on from 2, Corinthians, or 2 Kings 16 is that Ahaz has already committed to pursuing his own means of salvation, and he is already planning to go to Assyria and ask them for help and protection from his other enemies up north. And so he kind of shrouds his belief in God, or or his his unbelief in God, in this false sense of piety, saying, I'm I'm not going to test God. And so he... He, he has already made these moves. He's already made his decision. Out of fear, he turns to the nation of Assyria, this rising superpower, this brutal pagan empire coming from the east. 
He's so afraid of, of these two nations in the north and, and taking over his role that he, he's going he's to pursue this ridiculous means of escape. And so he begins to offer tribute to the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser at the time. And he asks for protection from Israel and Syria up north. So rather than trust God who has been faithful to his people over and over again, he chooses to trust in a pagan nation that's bent on global takeover. So scared of being overthrown by his brothers up north, he's made his decision not from faith in God, but from fear that leads him to place his trust in a destructive king. So let me just ask you the question that we'll come back to, what do you fear the most in your life? What is that which terrifies you? What is your, your, the thing that you are most afraid of in your life? For Ahaz at this moment, it was being removed from his place as king. But it moves on to give us this sign of hope from a gracious God. Point number two. And despite Ahaz's rejection of God's protection over him, God himself declares that he will give a sign to Judah. He says, Ahaz, you're not going to ask me for one, but I'm going to give you one. And this is the sign which all of a sudden... In the middle of this story recounting an episode in Israel's long history, we arrive at this very familiar passage where God says to him, behold, a virgin will conceive. The word there used could could, could also potentially be translated as, as just a young woman. A young woman will conceive, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We all know that one, right? Because we hear it all the time at Christmas. It's because Matthew, as we read earlier, takes this text and explicitly says that it is fulfilled in the virgin birth of Jesus. What happened in Matthew 1? This is the story of Matthew's account of the birth, where where Mary and Joseph are in this betrothal period, this this legally binding time of their relationship, but not fully married yet. And during this time, it it becomes apparent that, that Mary is pregnant. And everyone assumes, Joseph specifically assumes, she has been unfaithful. And so he, being an honorable man, doesn't want to shame her, but at the same time doesn't feel like, like the, the, the relationship can continue on to marriage because of what has been done. And so he's going to divorce her privately. And God has to come in and step in and say, Joseph, this is, this is beyond you. This is something bigger than you. He says, don't be afraid. Trust in me. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And let this play out because what is coming through her is the one who is going to save the people from their sins. And then he quotes from Isaiah and says, all of this happened, this whole story that we know about around Christmas time, this happened to fulfill what Isaiah said, that the virgin will give birth to this one who will be called Emmanuel. So when you read just Matthew, you expect kind of the prophecy to be pretty straightforward, right? Like, Isaiah, you know, the, the prophet Isaiah said this, boom, we get to Jesus, it's fulfilled, there it is, right? Kind of like even, even last week we looked at Micah, which is a little more straightforward almost, that like, you know, this, this ruler's going to come and be born in, in Bethlehem. It's kind of, then Jesus is born in Bethlehem. It kind of is a little more straightforward. But here, it, having read the passage in Isaiah, it doesn't quite seem so straightforward, does it? Because doesn't Isaiah, the way that he's writing about this and, and, and the context, kind of indicate that, uh, 
this is referring to a child that is going to be born relatively soon in his day, right? What's going on here? This prophecy continues. It says that this boy, as he grows to the age of discerning right and wrong, kind of probably around 12 years old, he says that he will eat curds and honey. This is kind of the, the language of the food of, of those who, who, who aren't settled, who aren't cultivating land, but who are moving around with livestock and all, who, who don't kind of aren't settled in their homeland. He says he's going to be doing that and eating that diet because in a short time, the nations to the north, Israel, Ephraim, is going to be laid waste, is going to be put down. And so this child, it says, is going to be a sign to Ahaz that the, and to the people at that time that God will protect Judah from the northern invasion. But also, as the passage continues, we also see this also kind of change that comes in, where this sign is also going to be an indication of impending judgment that, that results on Judah because of their rebellion and lack of faith in God. And the passage goes on to describe in, in figurative language, if you read the end of chapter 7, this impending judgment as, as the eastern nation is, is called and, and even the, the nation in Egypt is called up and there's this battling and fighting and basically the whole land in which they live is going to be laid waste. It's going to result in just uh, everything that was cultivated is going to return to, to briars and thorns and the people are going to be scattered and there's going to be this destruction and desolation that takes place within even the land of Judah even though the nations up north are going to be judged through Assyria. And this is the context of what's taking place. And Emmanuel is sent as a sign that God is going to do this. So what do we do with this prophecy that in this context appears to play itself out within the next few years? Who is this Emmanuel that Isaiah speaks of? Some have suggested that it's possibly Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. But more likely, it is what is referred in Isaiah chapter 8. It's the son of Isaiah himself that comes along. And even Emmanuel is mentioned again in Isaiah 8 verse 8. And likely, it's his own son that's going to be born, that's going to be this sign and indicator. His other son that he brings with him to the pool also has a name that means a remnant shall return. So, so the prophet's children had this, had this uh, they, they were given these names that indicated and were a constant reminder to the people of something. And even his son is probably going to function as this Emmanuel figure to the king and to the nation. You guys tracking with me on this? So if this prophecy actually had a historical fulfillment in Isaiah's day, what is Matthew doing grabbing a hold of it and applying this to Jesus? Is he just kind of pulling out what he wants? And what we see here. As the, 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 the whole of scriptures has this united narrative, we see this principle of a double fulfillment that is taking place, that Matthew sees beyond the immediate fulfillment to the ultimate fulfillment that occurs in Jesus. There is a typological fulfillment that occurs beyond what he initially can see. The New Testament writers were reading the Old Testament as the unfolding narrative of God's plan to bring about redemption to a lost humanity, which culminates in the coming of Christ. It is this climactic moment that changes everything and all of their expectations and what they understood, even from what they thought they knew about their Old Testament. And so within this Old Testament framework, 
There is a constant forward-looking goal so that all of these stories, the recounting of Israel's history, is picturing and pointing towards what God will do through the true son, the true king of David, the true Israelite, Jesus. And all these things are ultimately fulfilled as Jesus comes on the scene. And even though Isaiah's prophecy had a near fulfillment, likely in his own son, the Emmanuel figure points towards a better Emmanuel, which as Matthew tells us is the one who will come ultimately not just to save from physical enemies, but will save us from our sins. And so what's the point of this prophecy for Ahaz in this context? This coming sign, this child that will be born will signify the presence of God with his people and in whose childhood Assyria will defeat Judah's enemies, but also it will wreak havoc and desolation in Judah. So is this sign positive or negative? Well, it ultimately ended up being both. On the one hand, Emmanuel was a sign to the believing that God would deliver Judah from her enemies and that his promise to establish his kingdom through the Davidic line would not fail. But also Judah's pursuit of security and rebellion from God to find safety on her own terms will not protect her and will ultimately result in destitution. And that's what's happening in this sign that God graciously gives. And to wrap things up, we need to move on to this future promise that is revealed in this child. When we arrive at Matthew's gospel, later on, we must understand again that he writes with the intention to show that Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament. Matthew is attesting and writing from this conviction that the one that they have been waiting for has finally arrived. And by identifying Jesus as Emmanuel of Isaiah 7, Matthew declares that God is with us. He has come to dwell with his people, not merely providentially, but personally. He's come to restore what has been lost. As we walked through Genesis in the last year and a half, one of the themes that we saw over and over was the the presence of God, right? It continues really throughout the whole of Scripture. What do we see in Genesis chapter 1 when God creates the garden and creates man? what's What's the beautiful thing about the garden is that God is with him. There is fellowship and a relationship with this God and with his, his, his image bearers. And when sin comes in and fractures that, and as the curse is spread out over the world, what happens is that man is cast away out of the garden, ultimately away from God's presence. There is this chasm and this gap that exists between a God who is holy and man who now is cursed by sin. And really the whole of the Bible is seeking to answer this question, this one overarching question, how can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? How can that happen? And the answer to that question is found ultimately in a person. As God takes on humanity and comes to us as a baby born in a stable. This child born to a virgin is a sign to you, it's a sign to me of God's longing 
to be with us, to have a relationship with you. You see, God ultimately has to write himself into his own story in order to save the characters within the story. And he does that because he is so firmly committed to being with us that he has to take on human flesh to accomplish that. He pursues us. Many of you know that uh, my wife and I have four boys. So within our house, my wife is vastly outnumbered. So, so what that means is that uh, the movies we watch are, are pretty cool movies. It's like, <laughs> it's like, you know, we get to watch Star Wars and Avengers, these, these great movies. But in light of this, I've recognized that, you know, my wife's never probably going to have maybe that daughter to, to watch those girly movies with or whatever. So I've told her, babe, every now and then I'll always sit down and watch a rom-com with you. So uh, the romantic comedy, something with, that we'll watch occasionally here and there. This great avenue. Nice smirk there. I like that. <laughs> anyway, but, uh, you know, we all know the romantic comedy, right? It's this predictable storyline, this predictable narrative, right? You know, this, this guy and girl meet in the most unlikely of circumstances. This funny, humorous relationship kind of builds and grows, and their love is blossoming together. But then, towards the end, there's always this, like, climactic moment, right? This, this, this crisis moment where some lie or deception kind of comes out or some boneheaded move happens to where there's, like, the breakup, right? There's always the breakup scene. You're like, no, it was going so well, and then they, they, they break up. And so then, you know, there's this scene usually that results in kind of the, the, the man being rejected and, the, and the, the girl just devastated, and she's, she's gone and she's leaving. So she's, a, she's about to get on a plane or, or catch a train or, you know, driving out of town and stuck in traffic. And then the scene shows up with the, with the guy, and he's like, oh, I lost it, I messed up, I failed, oh, I'm just going to, like, go mope. But then there's always some, like, smart people, like, around him, and probably all of the women in front of their TV shouting, no, don't let her leave, go after her, run after her, you got to go, go. And then the guy, you know, somehow gets on a helicopter to meet her, runs in somehow in some absurd way that he catches her at the last moment and just says, you know, I messed up, but I have to have you. My love for you is so great. And, and then there's this beautiful, happy ending as he, as he pursues, <laughs> as he pursues the love. Right, 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 right. That's, that's, that's the storyline, right? But the reality is why it works over and over and over and over again is because there's something incredibly powerful for us that, that, that the love, that desire will chase down that one despite all the difficulty, despite against all odds, despite the, the failures and mess-ups to run after that person, to pursue them, to be with them. And as cheesy and as, as cliche as it becomes in these movies, there's something very powerful about that. And the reality is that's ultimately what we see in the story of God. Except the, the, the more amazing thing is that God was not the one who messed up, but He's the one who runs after us. The one who comes down to us, to be with us, 
Christianity sometimes gets kind of cast as this, this religion of just morality and us being good and perfect and having to kind of, you know, misunderstand us making our way to God, that we've created our own righteousness to get back to God. And really, that's what most religions are. But that's not what the gospel is. That's not what the story of the Bible is. The story is actually the opposite. That despite our rebellion, despite our, the chasm that stood between us and God, God himself steps down to pursue us, to be with us, to have a relationship with us. And the only way that that bridge can be gapped between us and God is by God himself laying his life down to take our sinfulness and our rejection of him on himself and to give to us his perfect righteousness so that we can be restored to a right relationship with God, so that we can stand before God as God said to Isaiah in chapter 6, your sins are atoned for, that your guilt is removed, and only by me doing that for you can you stand in my presence and can we have this relationship. God pursues us in Jesus and in the incarnation. And this is why Matthew's declaration of Emmanuel is so powerful. God has come to restore His presence with humanity. So what does this declaration of God's presence with us mean for you? We all, like Israel and like Ahaz, face circumstances in which we may fail to see God's presence. And it's when we doubt if He is with us that we begin to let fear overtake us. And when we begin to live out of fear, we often turn to alternative saviors, just as Ahaz did. So again, let me come back to the question I asked earlier. Where do you turn when you fear? What is your greatest fear? When you look at the circumstances of your life, or maybe just the circumstances of this world... Are you tempted to say, God isn't here? Where is God in all of this? He must have abandoned us because because if He were here, then things wouldn't look like this. And where do your fears and your doubts make you turn? Maybe for some, your greatest fear is loneliness. Maybe God hasn't brought that long-term relationship into your life. Or maybe you're just longing for for deep friendships and relationships. Maybe your fear of of, of missing out and just being lonely your life. Maybe that's that's led you at times to pursue unhealthy relationships, to pursue relationships with with, with individuals that that, that don't even know God, that just want to settle for something to find that that loneliness rather than follow what God has has called you to. Maybe in your relationships you, you, you fear being accepted and being, being known for who you truly are, so you hide and you pretend and, and you aren't truly authentic with others. Because you have to manipulate and control your relationships to get out of them what you want for yourself. Do you believe that God is with you in your loneliness? Maybe your greatest fear is financial struggle. Does that fear... Maybe hold you back from stepping out in faith and living with generosity. Maybe even as we've set forth to this body kind of the the, the needs that we have for the budget here for this year and the needs at this church. Does your fear of of your own financial security maybe, maybe 
cause you to start just saying, well, you know what? Somebody else will step up to that. Somebody else will step up and, and give, give to that need. I, I got to look out for, for, for me first. I got to make sure that I'm, I'm taken care of, of first. And somebody else will do that. I'm not really in a place to do that right now. Does that, does that fear just, just, just keep you tight-fisted on what God has given you? And that could apply to your time, to, to the other resources you have. Do you live out of that fear? Do you fear maybe insignificance or a lack of meaning and purpose? So that maybe you're just paralyzed in life from, from doing anything, even if you feel God leading you in a certain direction. Or, or you're just kind of stuck in, in where you're at and you, just, you, you can't be content or satisfied because you just feel like your life's being a waste. Do you have health fears that drive you to place all of your hope really in the medical community that your ultimate Savior is, is only being healed? Is there a category in, in your life to, to trust God that He is with you in your difficulty and in your battles and that maybe He wants to display Himself and show Himself through others watching you suffer well? Do you just have FOMO and of a fear of missing out? So you don't really commit to anything. You're kind of half in with following Jesus, but kind of hedging your bets and kind of having a backup plan to kind of make sure that uh, you don't miss out on anything. Maybe you're even on the fence about coming to Jesus, but you're just not sure if God really has what's best for you. Maybe there's something else out there that you can, that you can find. So, so that fear of missing out just, just keeps you from, from fully trusting in Jesus, from fully committing to Him. In the face of your fears, do you then justify them by, by starting to blame God, saying, you've abandoned me, so I have to figure this out on my own, just as Ahaz sought protection from Assyria, even when God was right there saying, you don't have to fear. Um, some of you guys know our story. My wife and I moved out here to, to Fort Collins about a year, little over eight years ago. We were living in northeastern Pennsylvania in Scranton. Uh, so if you've seen the office, you have a good insight and good picture into uh, the city of Scranton and where we lived for a number of years. And uh, I was going to school at the time, but I uh, just really felt that that, that wasn't where God had us long term. And, and we, uh, through uh, some connections, uh, came out here and visited the crossing, got to see what God was doing in this church within the network, was really excited about it, felt like God was really just opening and, and leading us in that direction. So I went back to Pennsylvania and I, I quit my job. I'd finished up my, my schooling, and, and we just up and moved out here. We had this, like, passion to take a step of faith. And it was awesome that we were able to, we were able to do that with confidence. But, and I wish I could stand here and just say, hey, it was all easy, and it was good, and everything was perfect. But it was, it was, it was when we got here that the fears really started to set in. I didn't have a job. Then I quickly realized that I had a Bible degree and, like, some construction experience, so I wasn't very, you know, marketable for many <laughs> jobs. So, uh... I just began looking. I ended up, you know, working in the restoration industry, cleaning up other people's uh, damages and sewage, and that was fun. And uh, making, you know, just enough to maybe squeak by. And there was a lot of times there was, there was fear, like, how is, how is this going to work out? God, I think you've brought us here. I think you want us here, but, but I need you to show up, uh, you know, and we, we just, we tried in faith to, to, to step in to, to, to serve the church. There wasn't any promise or, or, or opportunity of like serving in a position in this church at the time. We just wanted to be a part of what God was doing here. And God led us, led us through that. And there was, there was tr- struggles and challenges and, 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 and 
waiting and patience and a lot of fears that overtook us through those, those times. And yet now looking back on all those times, the one thing that I am so certain of is that God was with us through each step. And I could sit here and I wish I could just tell you all the different stories of, of the ways that God showed up in our lives and took care of us in this way and provided through this completely unexpected means. And we're all called in different ways to live by faith, even amidst the fears that we, that we face. You see, Emmanuel is a sign to us just as it was to Ahaz. And in the face of all of your fears, what if you deeply believed that God is with you, that He hasn't abandoned you? The same call to believe set forth to Ahaz is given to us as well, but we have a more sure sign than he did. We have been given the full realization of God come to us, not through a human mediator, but in the incarnate Son of God. So Christmas for all of us should be a sign of assurance that God is with us. That in, and even though, like Ahaz, who was called to wait in anticipation of the promise given to him, we also are called to wait for the full culmination of the promise of the eternal presence of God that will come at his return. And so for those who believe this message, who who cling to this truth, this is good news. But actually, for those who don't believe, this isn't very good news. That's where the sign of Emmanuel, just as it was for Ahaz, is both a positive and and a negative sign. The presence of God signals both deliverance and restoration for those who recognize and submit to His presence, but it also signals judgment for those who reject His coming. So if you're here and you haven't found that security, that faith in God's presence in your life, there's a call in this passage to come to Him, to recognize that God has been reaching out to you to receive Him, to restore a relationship with you. There's an invitation to come to Him. I heard a quote this week that said this, that said, the true test of faith is not creed, but crisis. The true test of faith is not creed, it's not what you say you believe, but it's crisis. It's when crisis comes, where do you turn? Do you turn to other saviors? Or do you cling to the one who has said that he will be with us to the end of the age? And this passage encouraged all of us that we can be those because of Emmanuel, the sign that has been given to us, the sign of assurance for all of us, tells us that we can be those who live from faith in the God who is with us and not from the fears that we will encounter in this life. So let us pray to this God who has made his home with us. Father, What a glorious text, a great reminder for me in my own life and my fears and my doubts this week to look to you, to be assured of your purposes, to be assured of your plans, and even though things may not always work out the way that we envision, that you are yet with us, accomplishing your plan and your purpose in this world. I pray that we would be those who live from faith, a deep-rooted faith in you, and not from our fears. 
Give us the strength to do this through the spirit that has been given to us, that indwells us, to empower us. Give us the faith to believe. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.